unexplained mystery that no one has been able to solve, that has puzzled, perplexed and baffled both experts and amateur sleuths combined ever since it happened. A man's body is found up on a hill four months after he disappeared on the Isle of Mull. He was last seen getting into his private plane. His body was found with only a tiny scratch. But it hadn't been where it was found when all the search parties had looked for him repeatedly. Then it was found in the exact spot where searchers had looked many, many times. What on earth happened to Peter Gibbs? And how did he get to where he was found? The man in question was Norman Peter Gibbs, known as Peter. He was a talented violinist in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, and he'd been head of BBC Northern Ireland's Symphony Orchestra as well as BBC Scotland's orchestra leader. He'd been a fighter pilot in World War II with 41 Squadron of the RAF from 1944 to 1945. It was said that after the war, he had his Tiger Moth plane modified so that he could fit his violin into the baggage compartment. His comrades in the RAF called him a daredevil and a man who was plain talking, while those who knew him from the orchestra described him as a practical joker, such as the time he once flew over a live orchestra performance and bombed them all with bags of flour. While playing for the Philharmonic Orchestra in Washington, D.C., he stood up to chastise the German conductor, who, it was believed, had joined the Nazi party during the war, although no doubt he had no choice in this matter. Gibbs chastised the conductor in front of the rest of the orchestra for his arrogance and rudeness, which Gibbs had not been alone in noticing. The conductor, in response, demanded an apology and refused to perform again until Gibbs was sacked. The orchestra refused to back the German conductor, however, and Gibbs played on for the rest of the tour, while the German and his lawyers left to take up a new position at the Berlin and Vienna Philharmonic Orchestras. Well, the man whose body was later to be inexplicably found on the Isle of Mull, up a steep hill, went on to form the Peter Gibbs Quartet, which, according to musician David Myers, was a rather avant-garde affair. One of the violinists in the quartet was another man called Carter, who was reported as saying, being made up of very talented young musicians, it was immediately successful, but Gibbs, being Gibbs, demanded such high standards of them that it inevitably disbanded. Gibbs insisted that each member should sit in different corners of the room with their backs to each other and start playing by some sort of intuition. This, and many other crazy ideas, proved too much for the others, who all left. According to Mr Peter Mountain, who played in the London Symphony Orchestra with Gibbs, he heard of the time that Gibbs was getting a lift to the orchestra performance with another member, Rodney Friend, but they got caught up in traffic 
They had ground to a halt at Hyde Park Corner in the centre of London, in the middle of rush hour. They would be late to their performance at the Royal Albert Hall if the traffic did not move. And so, rather than resigning themselves to this fate, Gibbs asked to sit in the driver's seat. They swapped seats and Gibbs took hold of the wheel. He crossed over into the oncoming traffic lane, shot into Hyde Park, came out the other end, shot through red traffic lights and nonchalantly parked outside the artist's entrance. It would seem, then, that Gibbs was a man full of zest, a spirit of adventure and much daring. During his time in the orchestras, he'd also been flying privately. In 1957, he'd joined the Surrey Flying Club and he'd been flying private planes ever since. He owned a de Havilland Tiger Moth. Not only was Gibbs a fearless daredevil, but he was ambitious too. While still head of BBC Scotland's orchestra, he began to make money as a property developer. In 1975, he finally left his professional musician's career and began to expand his property development business. He was doing very well and making good money and had great plans. One of these plans was a little unusual, although not unique. He wanted to buy a hotel and have a private landing strip so that wealthy guests could arrive by private jet. On Christmas Eve of 1975, he returned to Scotland where he'd lived while in the orchestra there. He was accompanied by his girlfriend, Felicity Granger. It would be his birthday the following day, Christmas Day. He planned to stay on the Isle of Mull to celebrate. The Isle of Mull is a small island of the Inner Hebrides and lies off the west coast of Scotland. It's comprised of just 337 square miles, with a tiny population of under 3,000. Gibbs flew himself and Felicity to the island in his private plane, landing on the small airstrip not far from the hotel the Glenforcer, where they'd booked to stay. This hotel, their private landing strip, was only allowed to be used in daylight hours because it had no lights. It also didn't have the usual accompaniments such as traffic control, radar and, of course, the runway lights. Well, for this reason, the hotel only gave permission to land during fair weather and daylight in the spring and summer months. Glenforcer Airfield is located on the north coast of the island. And according to Glenforcer Airfield Limited, the runway is a grass strip 780 metres by 28 metres. The length is level, but the width has a slight slope down to the sea. It says livestock may be on the airstrip from October to April, and geese may present a hazard throughout the year. Turbulence can be expected on approaches with strong southerly winds, if using the runway, fly a curved approach from base leg inside the hill. And it says, due to high local terrain, you will not be able to make ground contact until visual with the airfield. This will become important later. The hotel itself is a 14-room Norwegian wooden log hotel imported from Norway. 
They say it's situated on the sheltered coast, on the east of Marl, at the narrow waist of the island, making it a great base to explore. Outdoor pursuits include angling, bird-watching and hill-walking. It's in an ancient landscape, with many standing stones and cairns. It says operated by the hotel is Mull's only airfield, which sits between the hotel and the sound of Mull. Direct to the hotel, Glen Forzer is adjacent to a well-maintained grass airstrip. Again, this is important for later reference. Gibson, his girlfriend, had flown from North Connell Airfield near Oban in the western Scotland, where Gibbs had hired a two-seater Cessna 1508 light aircraft, equipped with navigation and communication equipment, but not equipped with parachutes. This was normal, though, because it would have been very unusual for parachutes to be carried in any model of the modern light aircrafts. The journey from Oban Airfield to the private landing strip next to the hotel on the island of Marl took around 10 minutes. On the night of the 23rd of December, Peter and his girlfriend Felicity were booked in to stay at the hotel, the Glen Forcer. The next morning on the 24th, Christmas Eve, he flew Felicity to the Isle of Skye with him, where they checked out a few of the hotels in view of his property development plans. On the afternoon of the 24th, he flew them back to the Isle of Mull, landing just before 4pm, just as it was beginning to get dark. So far, all was well. They ate in a hotel restaurant that evening, during which they shared a bottle of red wine and some reports say whiskey too. By all accounts from the hotel staff, Gibbs was in a great mood that evening. Although he did express disappointment that it seemed he would not be able to fly on his birthday, Christmas Day, the next day, as a storm was due to come in. At around 9pm, when they were still in the hotel restaurant, he apparently suddenly decided he would fly tonight instead. He had a plan. He wanted to see if it was possible to land on the hotel airstrip in the dark. He quickly left his chair and returned to his room, where he changed into his flying gear. Then returned back at the dining room and requested that his girlfriend Felicity come outside with him, armed with two torches to use as makeshift landing lights to guide him home. He asked her to follow him outside and wait on the landing strip for him with the two torches placed on either side of the landing strip to show him where it was in the dark. Well, as hotel staff overheard his plans, they offered their opinion on this folly and strongly tried to persuade him against this rather rash plan. It was also not allowed, of course, and they could immediately see the danger in this experiment. Gibbs, however, responded by chastising them, telling them that he was not asking for their permission, merely informing them of his decision. He added that there was no risk, because his girlfriend, Miss Granger, would be guiding him back inland with the torchlights. He'd been a fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force in World War II, 
so this quick nighttime flight was hardly going to phase him, presumably. Besides which, the flight would be over and done with in the space of a few minutes. So he went ahead, going out to his small plane and starting it up. Felicity sat in the plane with him as it taxied along the landing strip, and then he stopped to let her out. Presumably he didn't need too much of a run-up to take off. Well, as he took to the sky in his plane, his girlfriend, stroke assistant, duly placed the two lit torches at the end of the grass landing strip, pointing out toward the sea. Then there she stood, in the cold and the wind, awaiting his return. She waited for an hour. He should have returned within five minutes. He never returned. Despite an ensuing huge air, sea and land search, no trace of him was found, nor of his plane. Of course, the most logical explanation was that he tragically, for some reason, crashed his plane into the sea. Perhaps it had engine failure, or it was pilot error of some kind, and terribly sadly, the pilot and his plane sunk into the depths of the ocean. This would completely explain why he was not found. He was now lying dead at the bottom of the sea. The island itself was searched, in case they were wrong, but no sign of him nor his plane were found. This, despite the police and hundreds of volunteers searching the remote, barren land below his flight path. And the RAF and Navy Air Service helicopters scouring the island for any sign of the plane wreck. However, this was not the end of the story. It really is just the beginning. And yet, the end is also cryptically unfinished. You see, four months after that fateful night on Christmas Eve, a shepherd called Donald McKinnon stumbled across Gibbs's dead body. It was lying on a hillside overlooking the sound of Mull and Pennygown Cemetery. Less than a mile from the grass airstrip from which Gibbs had taken off. He was lying on his back across a log. The owner of the hotel, David Howitt, saw the body in situ and he immediately confirmed that the body was wearing the clothes and flying boots that Peter Gibbs had been wearing on the evening he disappeared. It looked as though he'd simply lain down there and died. He was entirely alone. There was no plane wreckage around him. His body was pristine, save for a tiny cut on his leg. He did not look at all like a victim of a catastrophic plane crash. He did not look like someone who had crashed into the sea, escaped from his plane wreck in the icy winter waters, swum inland and climbed his way onto land, then succumbed to his injuries and died. 
His body was taken away for medical examination by Dr. Macaulay, Chief Medical Officer for Strathclyde Police on the mainland. And his death was ruled by the coroner as having been caused by exposure. After his body was discovered on land, search parties went out again across the island and dragged the inland locks and searched through the woods for the plane wreckage again. But again they came up empty. There was no sign of the plane. Was it at all possible that he had swum ashore in temperatures as low as 6 degrees centigrade where the life expectancy for survival in the water was given as under one hour. It would seem, even for a former World War II fighter pilot, to have been a feat of superhuman endeavour. Although his son says he was shot down four times by the Germans during World War II. His son said what he did that night attempting to fly inland with no navigation and no proper landing strip lights, was quite in keeping with his father's personality. What's perhaps most pertinent here, though, is that in order for him to have got to the hill where he was found, he would have had to cross over the road, which led directly back to the hotel. Surely, wouldn't he have headed along the road with the intention of reaching warmth and shelter rather than climb a hill? If he had the astonishing ability to climb free of his watery grave and make it back to shore intact, why would he cross the road and climb 400 feet up a hill to die of hypothermia and exposure? when all he had to do was to follow that road a short distance back to the hotel. Gibbs's son, Alan, is not convinced his father swam ashore and climbed up to his death. When speaking to the BBC, he said that he recreated the route his father took that night up the hill. He said, there's almost a continuous vertical wall of rock. Some of it is two metres high, some of it is three metres high, and there's relatively few gaps. Now this is the climb that I attempted in the company of my husky, who is pretty eager and pulls pretty hard. In about 40 minutes, I got halfway to where the body was found. There were points I had to turn around and go back. It was very boggy. I could not make it myself in daylight. I would stake every bit of my reputation, he said, that nobody swam directly to shore and climbed up that hill in the dark. Well, if he had been climbing vertically on rocks in the dark with heavy wet boots and jacket... How could he have no scratches or bumps or marks on his body? Even more astonishing was, how could his body not have been discovered in all the searches after his plane disappeared? How could the searchers have possibly missed his body 
when the very spot at which she was found was covered multiple times by search parties. The coroner said that his body was entirely consistent with lying there for a period of four months, which was the amount of time between him disappearing that night and being found on the steep hill. And yet, what is very odd is that he had no sea salt on his body. Well, surely that would be completely impossible, given that he had apparently, presumably, swum back to shore. The explanation given as to why his body had no sea salt on it was that he had been laying there so long that the elements had removed all trace. And yet, surely, wind and gusts there on that tiny remote island, surrounded by the sea, would be full of sea salt, as the breeze swirled around in the elements. Well, strangely, forensic tests on his body detected no marine organisms at all, neither on his body, or his clothes, or in the boots he still wore. No matter how heavy the rain might have been in the four months he was supposed to have been lying there, surely it seems highly unlikely that no traces of the sea would be on him after his swim back to shore, particularly inside his boots, which would have been saturated with seawater had he swum ashore. Then there is the inexplicable condition of his body. It was entirely intact, with no injuries whatsoever, save for the tiny scratch on his leg. His plane was still missing, and so no other conclusion could be given that it had crashed, and as the entire island had been searched for its wreckage, it had to have presumably crashed into the sea. But a crash surely would have caused him injuries, and indeed, surely... He would have been in a frantic and desperate struggle to inject himself from the plane while underwater. And that would seem impossible to do without causing more than a scratch to himself. He would surely have fought with all his might to free himself from the plane wreck as it sunk to the depths. No one could really wrap their heads around all of this. Then, in September 1986, almost a decade after Gibbs's body had been found, two brothers, Richard and John Grieve, were clam-diving in the Sound of Mull, when they discovered, at a depth of a 100 feet, a wreckage. This was about a mile to the east of the direct approach to the grass landing strip. When the wreckage was inspected by them, it appeared to have crashed with some impact. The engine had been detached from the airframe and was some distance from it. One of the wheels was missing, and the wings were detached and lying at some distance away from the body of the plane. The front perspex screen was shattered. Both doors were still locked. Escape could only have been achieved through the shattered perspex screen, and this would have to have been achieved by climbing and through sharp, jagged edges of perspex. This would have been difficult to achieve 
without some injury to the body, one would think. However, for some reason, the plane was not actually recovered, and the photos the Clam brothers had taken of the wreckage were not good enough to allow expert air accident investigators to assess whether the crash had been survivable. Local man Richard Grieve, when talking to Ian Punnett of BBC Radio in his investigation of the strange tale, said he found it implausible to believe that Gibbs swam back to shore. He said he himself uses not a wetsuit, but actually a thick dry suit of eight millimetres whenever he enters the icy waters there. When the plane was found, the doors were locked. He said he can't explain why that would be. He said, I think if he knew he was going to crash, and he must have had some warning, he would have had at least a door open that he could have got out of, unless he was committing suicide. He added, I wouldn't like to swim in that, even in my dry suit. When he got ashore, why would he cross a road and walk up a steep hill? It just doesn't make sense. I just don't see that what came up in the official reports could be true. He also added, I was talking to some farmers and on the night of the crash, they said they heard a plane go up over their farm. There was some talk about him going to Northern Ireland, something to do with the IRA, that would have taken him an hour, hour and a half. You'd have thought the authorities, for all it would have taken them to lift the plane, and all you would need is a couple of airbags. He said, I doubt the official story. There's too many things that just don't ring true. The more I think about it, the more I doubt it. Well, it is perplexing to think that surely the plane should have been lifted out of the water and inspected. But the Air Safety Board never got that chance. Why would that be? Well, Ian Punnett of the BBC turned to retired engineering academic Alan Organ, who has dedicated many years himself to looking into this mystery. Alan Organ said, It was simply impossible to jump from anything higher than ten feet without very serious injury or death. Well, after his body had been found on the hill... A fatal accident inquiry had been held on the mainland in Oban on June the 24th, 1976. The inquiry and the following media coverage seemed only to raise even more anomalies. The local shepherd who had stumbled across Gibbs's body was very forthright in stating that he and his sheepdog had walked past the spot where the body was discovered on multiple occasions, after Gibbs had disappeared, and he had never seen the body there in all that time. He insisted the man's body was not there. This was backed up by mountain rescue teams who had also searched the exact area several times and seen no body there. In fact, most of the inhabitants of the tiny island were extremely surprised 
that he was found in that spot after so many volunteers had covered the area searching for him. They also expressed surprise that his body was completely intact. They knew, from past experience, being very familiar with the land there and its environment, that bodies left out in the wild Scottish highlands and islands, whether human or animal, stood a very slim chance of not being picked at by natural predators. Very strangely, this was not the case for Gibbs's body. It had suffered no predation, and this, they felt, was extremely odd, given that it was supposed to have been lying there for four months. David Howitt, for Mull Historical and Archaeological Society, says, In my experience as a farmer, any corpses lying around, whether cattle, sheep, deer, are soon attacked by scavengers and reduced to a pile of bones. He adds, a shepherd, Robert Duncan, told me that he had been past that place several times with his dogs in the intervening period and found nothing. Also, there'd been a huge land air search of the area in the days following the disappearance, which also drew a blank. Cryptically, he says, one wonders how much experience the pathologists had of bodies exposed for such periods. Supposing they had reported that its condition was not consistent with this period of exposure, what would the repercussions have been? Best to give the expected answer and allow the whole tragic affair to be quietly forgotten. Speculation and rumour was that his body could have been dumped there at some time after his death despite the medical examiner's ruling. Some of the suggested explanations put forth after the discovery of his body were that he had been on a clandestine mission for MI6 in Northern Ireland. He had worked and lived in Ireland while playing the violin for BBC Ireland Orchestra and, of course, he'd been in the RAF during the war. The Troubles in Northern Ireland were ongoing, and so this speculative theory was that the IRA had captured him, then returned him to the island after killing him, to leave a calling card as such, and to taunt the powers that be, that the IRA would not be messed with. Although this would seem quite a complicated and extreme theory. Perhaps he was smuggling something precious and illicit. And yet, there was never any suggestion that Gibbs was anything more than a patriot who'd fought for his country's freedom and as an honest businessman, so it would seem very improbable that he was up to no good. But had he been trying to fake his own death? And it went somehow horribly wrong? Or had it been some kind of insurance scam gone wrong? And yet, if so, why would he end up on a log on a hill with four months of time missing between his disappearance and subsequent discovery. There was also nothing in his business life that suggested anything other than an honest and successful man. Did he have another, 
secret reason to attempt what most pilots would say was a lunatic attempt to land in the dark, other than to see if it could be done. After all, if it could be done, surely he would still have been hard-pressed to find other private charter pilots willing to gamble their lives on seeing if they too could land in the dark on a tiny airstrip, all for the purpose of staying at a luxury hotel. Why would any other pilots be willing to possibly, and quite probably, crash and die by booking a stay in a hotel that required nighttime landing on a grass landing strip modelled on the one at the Glenforza Hotel? The purpose of Gibbs's planned idea was for luxury guests to come to a hotel he would purchase. Not suicidal charter pilots. It was later discovered that when Gibbs hired his private plane, his licence had actually expired, although he did have 2,000 flying hours experience. According to the research of David Myers, who is a former chief producer of music and arts at the BBC, on one occasion, and it was to be only once for good reason, he says businessman Morrison Dunbar and Stradivarius violin owner, the Stradivarius violins being the most expensive in the world, was invited by Gibbs to fly from Glasgow Airport over Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park in the Highlands of Scotland said Morrison Dunbar afterwards. It immediately became clear that Peter was navigating solely by means of a small AA handbook. In other words, he was navigating his plane by using an Automobile Association road map. Said the businessman, when he got lost, he would fly down and take a quick look at the road signs. Well, Gibbs was no doubt then a true daredevil, but what has never been solved is the mystery of how his body ended up where it did. Curiously, it was alleged that when Gibbs never returned that night and while his girlfriend Felicity was awaiting the arrival of the police, she mentioned that he had told her if everything went wrong, he would throttle back and jump to safety. Well, again... Jumping on land would have, no matter how low, resulted in some form of probably very serious injuries to his body. And the plane did not land on the island. And the belief that he somehow managed to swim in the freezing water with both heavy flying boots and flying jacket would seem an impossible feat. Why would an experienced, albeit daredevil, pilot even want to have to jump out of a plane in the pitch black on a winter's night, not even knowing if he were jumping into the sea or jumping onto the land, either of which could only have spelt certain disaster and most probable death. He certainly did not come across as a man who had an overriding death wish. No matter the practical joker that he was, he had great future plans in business, was a man of ambition and had made a great success of his life. He certainly never indicated to anyone who knew him that he wouldn't mind killing himself. Yet he must have known how dangerous it was to do what he was planning. So was there some other reason for it? And what could that other reason have possibly been?
He knew that the plane he was flying had no parachute. Curiously, the owners of the hotel, David and Pauline Howitt, claimed that while watching Gibbs manoeuvring his plane before takeoff that night, they'd both seen two torches being moved separately, at the same time, at the end of the runway. This seemed to imply the presence of a third person on the runway. Although Gibbs's girlfriend Felicity maintained that only she handled both torches. Had it really been Gibbs at the controls that night, some people wondered? Or had he planned his disappearance to escape a personal problem or business debts? And yet, if he had planned to run away from it all and start a new life, how did he end up dead up a steep hill four months after his plane vanished? Said one pilot, several aspects to this story have my spidey senses tingling. The plane comes with locking mechanisms to prevent accidental opening in flight. But they are capable of being opened from inside the aircraft. Bearing some extreme damage to the doors, that somehow warped them in a way that they could not be opened, there would be no reason for a pilot to choose to escape through the window. If these divers found the locks were still in place when they discovered the aircraft, it suggests something quite different than the pilot was incapable of leaving via the doors. Does he mean sabotage and subterfusion of some kind? This presumably would apply for the theory that Gibbs disembarked from the plane while in air when he realised something was wrong rather than underwater because I... I don't think he could open the doors underwater, surely. Well, let's just pretend that rather than try to do a controlled landing, which according to pretty much all pilots say is far safer than actually jumping out midair, and by some miraculous divine intervention he didn't get injured in any way when he jumped, which, of course, is highly improbable, but still, if we pretend that this did happen, then how did he magically appear six weeks later, dead, lying across a log in a spot that had already been searched many, many times? Had someone got in the plane, hijacked it, held him hostage, and somehow he ends up dead on the hill, having been kept somewhere else for four months? and yet his girlfriend had taxied with him in the plane before he took off. A mystery passenger would have to have got in after she got out, and yet the owners of the hotel, other staff, and several guests reportedly told newspapers that they had watched him that night through the windows of the hotel, and no one else could have been in the plane if his girlfriend had got in to taxi to the end of the grass runway, as the plane was just a two-seater. And if he had been killed by a captor or captors, why not dispose of his body somewhere secret, where it would never be found, rather than put it somewhere in plain sight? The hotel owner David was in charge of the landing strip that night. He told reporter Ian Punnett, I came straight out with binoculars, and we said, what on earth is that madman doing? Before long, the plane disappears behind some trees, 
as is normal, and they lost sight of its outbound trip. But as hotel guests learnt of the escapade, everyone rushed upstairs to the bar, intending to watch his landing. There were no lights on the landing strip to indicate to them exactly where the landing strip was, and there was no visible moon that night. So, in an attempt to improve their vision, the bar lights were turned off inside the hotel. David says he still has the two torches that were used that night at the end of the runway. They were tiny, handheld torches. Some guests thought that Gibbs took an unusually long time to warm the engine of the plane up, while others said they were sure there were two people out on the end of the runway, as they believe they could see both torches moving at the same time at a distance from one another. Well, perhaps it does have to be added here that it was Christmas Eve and people were there to celebrate the holiday season. And no doubt, alcohol was being consumed that night. The former hotel owner added, in an aside, My mother had her room of the hotel exercised. Apparently, all sorts of nasty things happened in that room. When the plane failed to return, hotel owner David drove his car down to the water and shone his headlights into the sea, attempting to see where the plane must have crashed. When showing the investigator where he'd gone down to the water to look for Gibbs's plane, they had to pass the cemetery to do so, said David. This old cemetery, it's haunted rotten there. He said time and again they've tried to put a roof on the church, but the fairies came each time and took it away. Did Gibbs miraculously survive the crash, completely uninjured, climb a steep hill in sodden, heavy clothing and boots, a hill his son failed to conquer in daylight when dry, rather than go to the shelter of the hotel close by and then die from the elements... Then someone took his body and hid it for a few months, then took it back, not being seen by anyone, and leaving his body in pristine condition. That would seem like an impossible tale. The owner of the hotel saw his body when it was found, though, and he says the only thing holding him together was his clothes. He was in a terrible state of decomposition. Interestingly, he also adds, there was no question about it, he'd been walking down the hill. The medical examiner did not see the body in situ. He received the body for post-mortem on the mainland. He said he was clothed, and I just found this a very odd problem to be faced with. It's weird that the body didn't turn up fairly quickly after the crash. That's very unusual, and one would expect fairly major injuries coming out of a plane like that. There was nothing to suggest he had come out of a plane, flying at any speed at all. There was nothing to suggest he had died in one place and been taken and put in another place. There was a toxicology search for any poisons or medicines or alcohol, and to the best of my recollection, nothing was found by forensic scientists. The result of the search for salt water was negative. It did not confirm the suggestion 
of salt water being present. The body was also tested for these little organisms that exist in the sea, he said. This was negative. Lying exposed to rainwater for four months, I should imagine that much of the fresh water coming down from the sky, although, he said, this is not my specialism, but I would have thought that it would have washed away any salt water present. But surely his boots, which he was still wearing when his body was found, could not possibly have had no salt in them, unless he'd never been in the sea at all. And if he hadn't been in the sea, how did he escape from his plane uninjured and end up on a steep hill, then die? Said the medical examiner, in the absence of anything else, we were reduced to saying he had simply died of exposure and the consequence of loss of heat and loss of will to struggle, because where the body was found was not far from the road. Average survival time in this sea is one hour. It was estimated that Gibbs had 300 metres in the sea to swim, not the calm waters of a swimming pool. 300 metres in a pool is not too bad. 300 metres in a winter sea is another matter. It would have exhausted him if he'd made it. Why then would he start climbing a steep rock hill? Unless he was trying to get his bearings? But he would surely have known he'd crossed a road... Unless, of course, his feet had turned to jelly from the sheer exhaustion of trying to swim ashore. In the wild, freezing sea, still wearing heavy flying boots that would have become dead weights when waterlogged. His brain, along with his feet, would most probably have turned to jelly, numbness, fogginess and disorientation. Perhaps that was why he would not have noticed that he was crossing a road. His feet would not have had the ordinary ability to detect what he was walking on. They were feeling heavy and like jelly, and desensitised sufficiently to not be able to feel a tarmac surface. After he crossed the road, which would have taken him straight to the shelter of the hotel, did he continue upwards, climbing rocks, because he did not know what direction he was heading in, and by getting higher he believed he would be able to pick up the lights of the hotel? And yet he knew the rough layout of the small island, having flown there. The most curious aspect of all of this is that where he was found, up the steep hill, was so hard to access that if he had climbed up out of the sea, as his son said, in about 40 minutes his son had only got halfway up to where the body was found, there were points where he had to turn around and go back, it was so boggy, and he couldn't make it in daylight, let alone in the dark and soaking wet with heavy clothes. And how could his body not have been discovered there in all the searches after his plane disappeared? How could the searches have possibly missed when the very spot at which he was found was covered multiple times? What happened that night of Christmas Eve when Gibbs took off on his daredevil mission? What happened to his body in the four months between when he disappeared and when he was found? And how did he end up on that steep hill dead? <laughs>